Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Carbs, protein, and fat, macro and micronutrients, dieting and calories, supplements, all things that athletes are concerned about to varying degrees. Proper nutrition is essential for fueling our bodies and optimizing our athletic performance. But are our athletes doing it correctly? Are we advising our patients correctly? Today, I'm joined by a prominent sports nutritionist, and we will tackle a wide variety of topics in the area of sports nutrition and what we think about with our athletes. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and you are listening to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Dan Benderdot. Dr. Benderdot received his PhD from Cornell University, is a registered and licensed dietitian and nutritionist, and is a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine. He recently retired as professor of nutrition and professor of kinesiology and health at Georgia State University, where he served as the director of the Laboratory for Elite Athlete Performance. He is now Professor Emeritus at Georgia State University and Professor of Practice in the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University. He is the author of several books, including Advanced Sports Nutrition, of which the third edition was released at the end of July of 2020, many other book chapters, and journal articles. He has worked for many years with Olympic athletes, including power athletes and endurance athletes, and he was also the team nutritionist for the five years leading up to the Atlanta Falcons 2017 NFC Championship. And I don't know, Dan, if you still work with them anymore, but uh, they may need your help again. <laughs> so welcome to our podcast, Dan. Thank you. Nice to be with you. So we, we both know proper nutrition is critical for athletes. They need fuel to perform. Some of those choices can be good, some not so good. Some may be undershooting their caloric goals. Others may go over. We know that nutrition is an area that's glossed over, maybe not even talked about at all when discussing things with athletes in office visits with providers. Can you talk to us about some of the problems that athletes face with nutrition in general? Yeah, I'd say the the biggest problem is the way that the food consumed is distributed during the day. There's a really big tendency to backload intake, and that backloading causes huge problems. It's basically telling your body, I'm going to give you the fuel you needed after you needed it. And that causes a lot of problems. So the backloading issue, I would say, is number one. The other issue is also kind of big is that, you know, if I talk to a group of athletes and I say the word carbohydrate, they kind of go, eh. If I say the word fat, they kind of go, eh. But if I say the word protein, they go, ah. And there is a tendency to consume rather large quantities of protein, but most athletes have no idea whatsoever of how best to consume the protein so that the tissues can optimally use it. They tend to have too much at once. They tend to, again, backload the protein just like they do with everything else. And it, they really are minimizing the potential benefits that they could have if they took the protein that they consumed and consumed it in a way that the tissues could use it. And, and I think a really important thing to mention here also is that if you look at studies, the limiting substrate in human performance, typically, is not protein consumption. It's a failure to adequately satisfy carbohydrate needs in real time. 
And because athletes kind of shrug their shoulders or they say, well, if I have more carbohydrate, it'll just make me fat. They tend to minimize the importance of carbohydrate, and that causes all kinds of difficulties for them. So I, I would say those are the big issues. You know, I, I've loved hearing you talk about this. And when you've given talks, you, you kind of talk about the myths and misperceptions in sports nutrition. And I'd, I'd like to kind of touch some of those because I think that's helpful for our listeners in talking about those types of things and helpful to dispel some of the the common things that are, are still out there. And that, frankly, that people like us as physicians, we kind of spew that common misperception out throughout the world. You talked about protein, and we know that athletes put a lot of emphasis on their diet and loading up with protein, whether it's protein shakes, powders, all those types of things, and the thought that building muscle is the most important thing, and the only way we can do that is by getting lots and lots of excessive protein <clears throat> in our body. What do you think about that? Is that, a, is that a good approach, or how should athletes really be tackling that? Well, if you look at the studies, I mean, it's pretty clear that if you overdo it at once, you may actually get the opposite of the desired effect. Probably the best biologically active protein that a human being can consume because of the amino acid distribution in it is whey protein isolate. And athletes know that, you know, so they, there's a lot of whey protein consumption in the athlete community. And one of the reasons why whey protein is, has such a high biological value is because it's a little bit overrepresented in the amino acid leucine. And leucine is a muscle protein synthesis stimulator. It stimulates muscles to take up protein, take up energy, repair itself, grow a little bit in reaction to the activity that was done. But if you have too much at once, you tend to get exactly the opposite of the desired effect. You kind of shut down the cells from doing anything. And that's what happens? I mean, a, a lot of athletes will say, well, this package is saying I should have 100 calories of this whey protein isolate. Well, if 100 calories is good, I'm going to have 200 calories. And that 200 calories overrepresents the leucine to the cell, and they don't get any of the benefit that they think they want to have. So how it's consumed, I think, is a very important issue. The absolute maximum, studies have shown, total protein that a healthy human being can consume at one time is about 1.66 grams per kilogram of mass. And if you look at the protein consumed by the vast majority of athletes, it's well over two grams per kilogram of mass. So already they're consuming a lot in total, but the added problem is that they're consuming it in a way, it's not distributed well throughout the day, they're consuming it in a way that minimizes the potential benefit that they could have if they distributed the protein better. It's not just protein, but how you have it, I think that makes a really big, big, big difference in whether or not an athlete will get any benefit from it. I usually will kind of explain it to patients when they're taking a protein supplement that you know, you take that protein supplement and your body only has so much ability to store that protein. And so when you go to the bathroom later and your your pee's that nice dark yellow, that's your protein supplement you're peeing down the toilet. Does that sound like a reasonable analogy or is that not, not it, true? It is. The truth is we don't really store protein. The protein is uh, either taken up by the tissues that need it to either enlarge the tissue itself, like muscle tissue or repair the tissue or to make hormones or enzymes or all of those other chemicals that the body needs to function well. Anything in excess of that is denitrogenated, that is the nitrogen is removed from the protein. And what's left is a carbon chain 
that can either be stored as fat or converted to carbohydrate and burned as energy. It's no longer protein. And then when you denitrogenate it, then what you described is exactly right. I mean, the nitrogen, one of the reasons we urinate is to get rid of excess nitrogen because it's potentially toxic. And if you're eating a lot of protein and breaking it down in a way that gets rid of a lot of nitrogen, then you have to pee it away. And it's a problem because if you're getting rid of a lot of nitrogen, then you have to produce more urine volume to get rid of it. But if you're even slightly dehydrated, then the kidneys have to concentrate the urine to get rid of more. And that's what, exactly what you described as the darker urine that people are saying. When you go to the Olympic Training Center here in the United States, when an athlete checks in, they give them a card. And the card has a color chart on it of urine color. And it's basically saying, if your urine gets to this color, you're probably underhydrated. You need to drink more water or, or drink something to rehydrate yourself because you're forcing your body to get rid of so much nitrogen that you're increasing the risk of dehydration. So it, it carries problems with it. It would be a lot better for an athlete, just you know, as an example, to have you know, something in the neighborhood of 25 or 30 grams of protein multiple times a day rather than what typically happens is to have 200 or 300 grams of protein in the day, the same total protein, but if you distribute it that way, you are much more likely to glean a benefit and you reduce the risk of dehydration at the same time. Let's switch to how about emphasizing our weight as a measure of fitness. Is that the right metric we really should be using? <laughs> oh, Mark, that's, that's such a, that is a really good question. Honestly, weight is the wrong metric for just about everything that it's used for. I mean, I, I can't think of anything worse. I, I, I give this story often when I'm asked the question about weight, about what happened once when I was working with figure skaters just before the Sochi Olympics at the trials. This figure skater made the Olympic team, and she's wonderful. I mean, the skaters are incredibly talented. They've got phenomenal coaches. I mean, they're just incredible. And the coaches really want the skaters to succeed, to, to do well. And I saw this skater who just made the Olympic team walking down the hallway, and she was crying hard, and she saw me, and she came up to me and was really crying hard. And I thought, my goodness, that's... Uh, I've never seen anybody cry for joy quite like that. And then I realized that there was something else going on. She wasn't just crying because she made the Olympic team. There was a problem. And what happened was that her coach strongly encouraged her to lose about 10 pounds before she got to Sochi. And I've known the coach for a long time. This is not a negative on his part. I mean, he didn't do it to be malicious. He did it because he wanted her to succeed, and he thought that the international coaches might score her better if she looked a little bit thinner. And so he just wanted her to do it her best. So I asked, would it be okay if I talked to your coach? And she said, yes. So I talked to him. I've known him for a number of years. Great guy, wonderful coach, always wants the best for his athletes. And I said, you just told her to lose 10 pounds in a week and a half before she goes to Sochi you know, that's, that's awfully hard. He said, yeah, but I think she'll get better scores from the international judges if she just looks a little thinner. And I said, well, what are you going to do if she doesn't lose that 10 pounds? And well, he said, well, we've got about a week once we get to Sochi before the competition starts. I'll just work her a little bit harder. 
And I said, oh, great, you're going to tire her out before the competition. He said, yeah, no, you're right, that's not a good idea. And I said, well, what, what would happen if she showed up in Sochi and she had gained 10 pounds of muscle and lost 10 pounds of fat? She'd be exactly the same weight, but her strength-to-weight ratio would be better. She'd be able to jump higher so she'd have more airtime to do her spins and would have more comfortable landings. She'll have more muscle moving less, non-muscle weight, so she'll have better endurance in the long program, and she'll be able to do her spins and her jumps better without falling at the end of the long program. She'll be smaller, which is one of the things that you want, because muscle takes up less space than fat. It's more dense. So everything would be better. He, and he looked at me and said, oh, well, if you could do that, then that would be fine too. And I said, well, leave her alone. She's the leanest person on the team. And she actually won a medal. That's what I mean. I mean, if you just look at weight, you, you have no idea. I mean, if somebody's losing weight and that's what they want to do, but the vast majority of it is coming from muscle, they've hurt themselves as an athlete. That, that's a problem. And that's why I'm concerned about it. It's funny, you know, you having worked with NFL athletes and, and myself as well, you know, we, we talk about weight a lot and you're talking about the extreme of the, the thin athlete and then also the athlete that would be considered significantly overweight. And for lots of reasons, an NFL lineman as an example. And uh, I remember watching some games this past weekend where, you know, one of the running backs was running down the field and the lineman was well ahead of this running back. And, you know, if we think of perception that performance is all based, you know, if you're big, you're slow or you're unable to perform as well, that's obviously the, the wrong way of thinking about it in all sorts of perspectives. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I had that argument repeatedly with, I mean, it really, it doesn't matter what the sport is, but a lot of people in some sports, they want bigger athletes. Football is the example for alignment, but they also have to be able to move their mass, which means that if you want them to be a little heavier, it'd be nicer if that extra weight was muscle weight so that they could move it faster because there is physics involved here. I mean, a faster moving object will knock down a slower moving object, even if it's smaller. Being able to come off the line just a little bit more quickly has a lot to do with what your strength to weight ratio is. So that leads us uh, perfectly, I think, into the next question as far as is body mass index BMI, is that better indicator of an overall level of fitness? You know, that's a, that's an, a really good question also, Mark. We have to consider what BMI is. I mean, BMI, body mass index, was created as a population metric for determining the risk of obesity in an assessed population. It was not developed for assessing individuals, even though it's currently used often in that way. It, it's a misuse of BMI. I would say if you're looking at a population of people and you want to get an idea of what proportion of them are overweight, what proportion of them have BMIs over 30, you can get an idea of what the obesity risk is of that population. But you can't look at any individual in that population, take their BMI, and have a good understanding of whether or not they're obese. I mean, athletes are classical as satisfying the BMI criteria for overweight or obesity because they're holding a lot more muscle per unit height they have a lot more weight per height because of their musculature. And they look, if you use a BMI scale on them, they look as if they're either overweight or obese, and they're not. I mean, that's a false positive, and that creates difficulty. And you also, by the way, get a lot of false negatives with BMI. You can have thin people who are not lean, 
people, right? You can get people who are thin, who look as if they have a totally normal BMI, but they're obese. And I think we have to remember that obesity is not a high weight for height. Obesity is excess body fat. And so I, I, I think we have to be careful about how we use BMI for individuals. It's, it's misused. It's, it was not its original intent, and it's not used well if you do that with individuals. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our discussion on nutrition for the young athlete. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Welcome back to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We're talking today with Dr. Dan Benardot a sports nutritionist, and we're discussing common myths and misconceptions in the world of nutrition and athletics. So if you get an athlete that comes in and talks to you and they're desiring to lose weight, how do you approach that athlete? I kick them in the shin to get their attention. <laughs> and then I ask them, well, what weight do you want to lose? Do you want to lose muscle weight? Do you want to lose bone weight? Do you want to lose water weight? Do you want to lose fat weight? And they go, oh, fat weight. I want to lose fat weight. Well, that's good because... The strategy for losing fat weight versus just total body weight is completely different. I mean, if you want to lose body weight, just put yourself on a severe caloric restriction and you'll lose body weight. But the body's adaptation to that weight loss is to lose more metabolic mass than fat mass because the body wants to survive. I mean, that's a very important question, which is how can I survive this inadequate energy intake? And the way it survives is by saying, hmm, I better lower my need for calories. And it lowers the need for calories by lowering metabolic mass. And that includes organ mass and muscle mass and also bone mass. But actually, relative body fatness stays elevated. I mean, if you want to lose fat, then the strategy has become increasingly clear, which is that you have to stay in a reasonably good energy balanced state all day long, where, where the deviation in energy balance, if you're a small person, maybe plus or minus 300 calories from perfect energy balance, 
And if you're a larger person, maybe plus or minus 400 calories of energy balance throughout the day, but spend a little bit more time within that energy balance range in an energy balance deficit so that you'll lose a little bit more fat, but not put yourself in such a severe energy deficit that the body is motivated to lose lean tissue. I mean, the International Olympic Committee now has a wonderful consensus statement on relative energy deficiency in sport, Red S, which, by the way, is publicly available if you just go to like Google Scholar or something like that and put in R-E-D-S, you can get the two consensus papers on that very nicely. What it tells you is that if an athlete tries to do anything where they don't have sufficient energy available to do it, they have all kinds of problems. They lose lean mass, they lose bone mass, they have high cortisol, they have, if it's a female athlete, low estrogen, all kinds of issues. So the strategy is different. That's that's all I can say. And, you know, a lot of the studies right now, Mark, that are looking at different ways to lose weight, per se, measure the wrong thing. They're measuring weight rather than asking a very important question, which is, what weight are you losing? So I think we have to look at that carefully. We'll make sure to have links to the Red S documents that Dan <clears throat> talked about in our show notes for sure. Let's talk about exercise in general. So is exercise the same for everyone burning calories? So if I went out and ran a mile and you ran out and ran a mile or a NFL lineman or our Olympic figure skater went out and ran a mile, is that the same for everyone as an example? Well, if you look at the machines that predict energy expenditure, you would think so. But no, it's completely different. One of the very interesting features about humans is that because genetically we came from a place where it was difficult to satisfy energy consumption in real time all the time, humans treat energy as precious, precious. So we're always trying to find ways to lower the need for energy. So as an example, if I for the first time decided I was going to run a mile, right? The first time I would run that mile, my heart rate would be high, I would be sweating profusely, I would be burning an enormous amount of energy running that mile. But if I continued to do that, over time I would become much more energy efficient at running that same mile because the body is always trying to find ways to lower the cost of activity. If I was lifting weights for the first time, let's say somebody, I had an athletic trainer and they said, okay, I want you to lift this 40-pound barbell 20 times over your head from the floor. And I've never done it before. So the first five times, no problem. The next five times, my heart rate is going through the roof. The next five times, I'm getting very exhausted. I'm sweating profusely. And the last five times, it's like the most difficult thing my body has ever done. A huge amount of energy expenditure associated with that. But if I continue to do it, then the body makes an adaptation. One of the adaptations is that if I'm eating correctly, I build muscle. Why? To make it easier to do that repeated task. By making it easier, yes, I have a higher basal energy expenditure because I'm supporting more metabolic mass, more muscle mass. But if you look at the total energy that my body needs, that increase in musculature actually decreases my total caloric requirement because now it's easier for me to do that task. 
So we're always trying to find ways to lower the cost of energy. So if somebody is very well conditioned to a particular activity, they're burning less energy than somebody who's less well conditioned for that specific activity. Do we think about that in terms of when we think about someone going through an exercise program to start off with, and they may have some significant weight loss at the beginning, but then they really are challenged to lose more weight later? I mean, I have always thought of that in terms of, you know, well, now, you know, their body has become more efficient, but also they're building muscle mass. So that may balance that out. But is it really more a matter they're just becoming more efficient, why they may have more difficulty losing weight later on? Well, I mean, as I mentioned before, I'm not sure that weight would be the appropriate metric to look at if somebody's doing something like that. Understood. So, I mean, I would say, first of all, I would track them. You know, I I wouldn't take a single measure and say, okay, you're doing the right thing. I mean, I would track body fat percent, for instance, Mm -hmm. right? Just to give you an example, let's say that we had a team of people and we knew what the standard deviation of body fat is within that team. Somebody whose body fat percent is more than one standard deviation above the mean with the team. So their body fat is high. So we decide we're going to put them on an exercise protocol, right? And we start measuring the change in body fat. We put them on an exercise protocol and their body fat percent stays the same. So would you say, okay, the exercise protocol is wrong just because there's no change? Or, I mean, it can be very confusing if you only have a single measure. I mean, let's say that we've got somebody who we measure and their body fat percent is high. But what if two weeks before that it was even higher without any intervention from us? And two weeks before that it was higher still without any intervention from us? The last thing we would want to do is intervene in an athlete who's body fat is moving in the right direction. If we intervene, we may change the successful strategy that they've already adopted to have that change in body fat. You could say the same thing in the opposite direction. If you have an athlete who has a relatively low body fat percent, they're lean, and therefore you consider that desirable because they have a relatively higher strength to weight ratio, you take one measure. You say, okay, you're perfect. I'm going to leave you alone. But what if two weeks before that, it was leaner. And two weeks before that, it was leaner still. Now, that's somebody you should intervene with because they're moving in the wrong direction. But because you've only taken one measure, you make an assumption about what's going on with them. So I would say having a sequence of measures to determine what the best strategy is, is very, very important. And to to understand if intervening is the appropriate thing to do at all. That's a helpful way to think about it. I know there's so much emphasis on, you know, just looking at that weight because it's an easy measurement for most of us, right? We can hop on a scale and look and see what that is, but we don't have that big picture, that full picture in there. And and that's probably a good way to transition to the next question, which I think a lot of us simplify this. I know I've been guilty of this as talking about weight control as calories in should be equal to calories out and to lose weight, we need to burn more calories than we take in and vice versa for gaining weight. Is that really the appropriate way of thinking about things? Well, in simple terms, no. Uh, (laughs) The calories in, calories out paradigm makes the assumption that the pancreas waits until the end of the day to determine how much insulin to produce. And it doesn't. You know, it works in real time. We have to look at energy in and energy out in real time. We, We can't look at it in an abstraction of time in day or a week to determine whether or not somebody's energy consumption is good. So, I mean, just to give you an example, is there a difference 
in someone who has a 3,000 calorie energy requirement. That's how much energy their body needs in order to satisfy their needs. And if that person ate a 3,000 calorie dinner and nothing else, it would appear using that calories in, calories out paradigm that everything is perfect, but it's not. I mean, if they eat 3,000 calories at once, insulin is produced exponentially to the caloric load of the meal that is being consumed. So they're going to be insulin-producing monsters and make a lot more fat out of that 3,000 calories than if they had three 1,000-calorie meals where you would get a significantly lower total insulin production because they're eating smaller meals. And it would be smaller still if they had six 500-calorie meals. How the calories are distributed is extremely important. Let me give you a little example of this if I can. Let's say that somebody skips breakfast because they want to lose weight. And the last meal they had finished at 7 o'clock at night the day before. And the next time they're going to eat is 12 o'clock for lunch. Well, no human being can go that long and satisfy blood sugar. So you can be very assured that that person is going to be approaching lunch in a low blood sugar state. If you eat and you're in a significant low blood sugar state, normal blood sugar is 80 to 120 milligrams per deciliter. So let's say somebody's at 60 or 70 because they waited so long to eat. When you eat and you're in that state, you're hyperinsulinemic. It doesn't matter what you eat, you're going to make more insulin than you would have if you ate in a normal insulinemic state. The appetite-stimulating hormone, ghrelin, has been telling you for a while, you need to eat something. But what's kind of interesting is that the appetite-stimulating hormone, ghrelin, is shut off if you have a normal insulinemic response to eating. If you have a hyperinsulinemic response to eating, as in the example I just gave you, ghrelin is not shut off. It stays elevated. So you eat more than you would have eaten because of the low blood sugar state that you are in, you're hyperinsulinemic, and the hyperinsulinemic state does not shut off ghrelin, so you eat more than you would have. Well, as I mentioned before, insulin is produced exponentially to the caloric load of what you eat, and because you're eating more, now you're also producing more insulin on top of that. So you become a fat-making monster by allowing blood sugar to drop. It's extremely important to have an eating pattern that would satisfy energy balance and blood sugar. And most people just doing normal daily activity, blood sugar fluctuates in about three hours during the day, and it'll fluctuate in seven, seven and a half, eight hours overnight, right? It'll go from normal to too low. So let's think about that. So you wake up in the morning, and you've just slept seven hours, and assuming you had a little snack just before you went to bed, your blood sugar is low, but it's still within the normal range. You have breakfast. Everything is good. No problem. And the next meal you have is six hours later at lunch. You're going to have low blood sugar. You ought to have a thing called morning tea, where you have tea, something, a piece of fruit, a little cracker, something to normalize blood sugar. It doesn't take a lot. And then you have lunch. And, but you're approaching lunch now with a normal blood sugar state. And you do the same thing throughout the day. You have a little snack in the afternoon. You have dinner. You have a little snack in the evening. 
and you have a little snack before you go to bed. So you're sure to sustain a normal blood sugar state overnight. Now, a lot of people say, well, if I eat that often, I'll have too many calories, I'll get fat. Actually, because of the ghrelin control that you achieve, studies clearly show that people who eat more often eat fewer total calories than people who eat less often. Meal restriction ends up being a horrible strategy for sustaining a desired body composition. It's terrible. You end up getting fatter because you make a lot more insulin than you should, so you make more fat out of the food that you consume. You tend to stimulate the production of cortisol because when you get low blood sugar, cortisol is produced to break down lean mass so the glucogenic amino acids can go to the liver and be converted to glucose so that the brain and central nervous system can function normally. Nothing good happens if you allow low blood sugar to occur. The trick in this is to say, how can I eat in such a way where I can stay in a reasonably good energy balance state throughout the day? It's difficult. It's, it's not an easy task. You have to have a good estimate of how much energy you're consuming all the time and how much energy you're taking in and distribute it in such a way where the deviation of energy balance does not exceed 300 or 400 calorie boundaries. It's, it's, a, it's a trick. I can give you an idea of how to start if you'd like me to, Mark. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Here's an easy way to start. Calculate all of the food that you eat and convert it to calories. Let's say somebody eats 500 calories for breakfast, 500 calories for lunch, and 2,000 calories for dinner. So they have 3,000 total calories. Step one in this is to evenly distribute those calories that you're already eating. You're now going to have 1,000 calories for breakfast, 1,000 calories for lunch, and something like 1,000 calories for dinner. So now you've got that same 3,000 calories, but it's now evenly distributed over three meals. Well, 1,000 calories is too much because that's more than the body can handle at one time. You would be in a big energy balance surplus with that 1,000 calories. So the next step is to say, okay, how can I take some of those calories that I'm having for breakfast and take a little bit and have it mid-morning? Take some of the calories that I would normally have for lunch, take it away from lunch, and have it mid-afternoon. Some of the calories that I would normally have for dinner, take it away and have it mid-evening. And then you've now distributed the energy that you're consuming in a way that keeps you in a much better energy balanced state, the protein that you're consuming will be provided in a way that the body can optimally use it. The frequency of carbohydrate intake is much more likely to sustain blood sugar. The insulin response is going to be controlled much more beautifully. Everything is better. You'll suppress the production of cortisol, so you'll keep the muscle you've got. Everything is better. Eating exactly the same caloric load that you're eating now. So that's a way to start. It's a great way to think about it. I appreciate that example. I think those are good practical tips that we need. And, you know, the next question I've got for you, I think I've probably already answered already. And I think our listeners probably would as well if they've been listening to you closely as far as how this question is worded of keeping on the topic of losing weight. <laughs> is a low calorie diet an effective way to lose weight? And I think, you know, we already have one of the answers there as far as what our metric is, right? But in general, in talking about what you just described, you know, I think this is probably where a lot of us and a lot of our, our population falls into traps with their diet, right? Yeah, I, I think you just have to be very careful because uh, just to give you an example, we published a study 
with my colleagues at the University of Copenhagen in 2018, where we took a group of female athletes who had a perfect energy consumption in 24 hours. In other words, we predicted how much energy they would require in a 24-hour period, and that's what they were eating. So that was our subject pool. But then we did a secondary analysis on this pool and said, what is the deviation from perfect energy balance within that pool of female athletes who are eating what appears to be the perfect energy consumption level? And what we found was that the athletes who had bigger uh, negative energy balances, where uh, let's say they waited too long to eat something during the day, but then made up for it later, but they went into an energy balance deficit that exceeded minus 300 calories, they had higher cortisol production, which means that they're going to be breaking down their muscle mass. They had lower estrogen production, which is terrible from a bone density standpoint, which means now they've got lower muscle, lower bone density, higher risk of stress fracture, because they don't have as much muscle with which to burn the calories that they're consuming, their body fat level is eventually going to be higher. It's eating in such a way where you can maintain energy balance so that it doesn't deviate too much from normal. You have big deviations, uh, either too high or too low, and you get all kinds of problems. The, the problem with most diets is that they encourage big energy balance deviations, and you get exactly the kind of response I just described. It's uh, not good. And you know most of them measure weight, again, which is the wrong metric. Also, they don't go long enough to understand truly what's going on, because most of these studies should go at least six months, perhaps longer, to see what happens to the person when adaptive thermogenesis kicks in. So adaptive thermogenesis is the body's adaptation to the inadequate caloric intake that a person is following, uh, that kind of low-calorie diet that a person is following. As an example, let's say I put you, Mark, on a diet that was 30% fewer calories than you're accustomed to consuming. Well, after four, five, six months, you, you have this adaptive thermogenesis where now you've become 35% more energy efficient. Mm-hmm. So I reduced the calories by 30%, you're 35% more efficient. The inevitable thing happens, which is your weight starts going back up and your weight can go back up to exactly the weight that you had before you started the diet. But what constitutes your weight is more fat and less muscle. Not at all. What physically, not really what anybody, whether they're physically active or not, that's not at all what anybody would want to happen. I guess the real weakness with a lot of these diets is that they don't track long enough what ultimately will occur with a person's bone density, with their muscle mass, with their fat mass. They don't measure those things. And they don't wait long enough to see ultimately what will occur when adaptive thermogenesis kicks in. I'm so excited that I've been joined by Dr. Dan Benderdot today for another episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. He has been full of great information, so much so that we decided to break this up into two episodes to make it a little bit more digestible, so to speak, in one sitting. I'm looking forward to getting part two of this episode out to you really soon. 
Please be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at PedsSportsPod or also through our Facebook page. Be sure to leave us feedback. It really is helpful for us, and we certainly would like to make sure we continue to get the word out about our podcast to other sports medicine professionals and those interested in pediatric sports medicine topics. I am Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and you have been listening to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.